You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science, and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado, our guest today is a fifth-year PhD candidate in developmental psychology at Yale University, studying how children conceive of religious groups as something similar to other social categories in the world, and sometimes very, very different. I want to welcome to the podcast, Emily Gurdon. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about um, childhood development. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I'm I'm always really excited to learn about the ways I'm ruining their lives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well... I'm I'm sure any developmentalist would tell you they're they're going to turn out okay. Uh, there's not actually that much that you could do, thankfully. That sounds like a challenge to me. <laughs> Please don't take me up on that challenge. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you'll finish your PhD program if that gets out. <laughs> I do often joke about how my kids are going to end up having a very weird view of religion because both of their parents are pastors. Um, but you grew up in an even more unique religious situation. Could you tell us a little bit more about what the religious landscape looked like in your home? Absolutely. So there are ways in which my uh, my religious upbringing was certainly unique, but also ways in which it actually isn't all that different. There's a large number of people growing up mm. in the United States who have one parent of one religion and another parent of another religion. And that's that. what was the situation, what is the situation for me. So my mom uh, was raised Jewish um, and identifies as Jewish. Um, and my dad was raised Christian um, and continues to identify as Christian now. And in my own experience, meeting other people who identify as interfaith, like me, I often find that there was a dominant religion in the household that, you know, one parent maybe didn't mm. care as much. And so, and the other parent cared a little bit more. And so they went to church or they went to synagogue or something like that. Whereas my parents went about things very differently. I grew up, uh, so for example, very early on in my childhood, I attended a Jewish preschool. So I was uh, going to a Jewish day school. And then over the weekends, I would be going to church um, with my parents I was very consciously being educated in both traditions. Um, I believe with the expectation that someday I would I would choose um, what group I wanted to be in. Um, hmm. People often ask me how that turned out, and the answer is I'm just very confused um, still. Uh, but I uh, <laughs> um, that was my my parents kind of very consciously. Uh, educated me and also my my younger siblings in both traditions. Wow. So you didn't feel any pressure to like pick mom's religion or dad's religion? I was young, but no, I don't even necessarily feel pressure now. I think when my parents think something is important, uh, when my parents think something is important, they just, they, they share that it's important to them. And I've never really felt pressured one way or the other about my faith. Wow. 
that's some good parenting. You know, and I, you know, I, like everybody else, uh, had conflict with my parents, but weirdly religion was not one of the, one of the places where, where it was. And I, I appreciate that, that, you know, Mm. for example, uh, this past weekend, uh, at the time of, of recording this past weekend was Easter. And, you know, my dad texted all of us, he is risen, um, because, you know, he was just sort of respecting like how, the, you know, that uh, Jesus's resurrection was very important to him. Um, and, you know, I mm. am thankful that he shared that with me, even if that's not necessarily, you know, even if I wasn't uh, doing anything to celebrate Easter that day. And at the same time, also, you know, mm. over the course of the pandemic, I've been going to all kinds of Zoom seders uh, for for Passover. So it's been a... a an interesting mix. And I, I like that we get to have both of these, uh, my family, when I say we, I'm meaning myself, my siblings and the rest of my family, we get to share all of these things that are about us. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's really, really wonderful. We strive to be, um, as interfaith as, as we can. And, uh, on this podcast, especially, uh, with respect to, to all religious beliefs, but, you know, sometimes, sometimes you just say something that is core to your religious belief that contradicts another mm-hmm. one, and then it can get, it can get messy sometimes. Did, um, as as adults, that happens to the best of us. Um, did you have like weird, confusing times as a child where you'd come home and be like, "Hey, Jesus was risen," and one of your parents would be like, "Um, no," uh, and then was there ever any like? weird conflict going on with that? I don't remember any time where I, or where anybody contradicted something in within my own family, where anyone contradicted something that somebody else said. But I mm. do very much remember feeling societal pressure. And I think one of the reasons why I'm interested in studying religion now um, as a, as a developmental psychologist and how children develop religious concepts uh, is because there's a lot of societal pressure to choose, you know, to be in one group or another. Um, and I, I even yeah. find that that pressure to be kind of echoed by my own, my own field. There's a lot of studying being a member of one group or another, and not a lot of studying being a member of mm. multiple groups simultaneously. Um, and so, yeah, I don't have a specific moment uh, in childhood that I remember, ah, yes, a time when um, my mom said something and my dad said, no, no, like that, that wasn't true. Um, Especially because I think they Mm. mostly, you know, they shared with me stories and then I chose what to believe. And I think I always, there was almost always a, an outsider scientific aspect to things because of this, uh, because of this weird sort of uh, position that I was in studying, I felt, I, I wonder if, you know, by accident, because they didn't want to push me in one direction or another, they ultimately kind of made me into this third party kind of outsider in both groups. Um, not to blame my parents too much for the situation, but you know, I, that's how I, that, that is in a lot of ways how I feel like I, I can't fully be a member. I can't fully be Jewish. I can't fully be Christian because I, I've been raised both because I know about both. And this leads me to being 
in this kind of outsider-like position, which we actually do know from the limited work that's been done on um, uh, people from a lot of different social categories. Um, or uh, So for example, um, there's been some work uh, by a researcher named Sarah Gaither, who's a professor at Duke University, on how um, biracial people, people who are a member of more than one racial group, so they have, for example, one Black parent and one white parent, um, how they feel and identify with um, their own their own identities, their own groups. And there's a lot of this feeling kind of like an outsider. Um, and that that seems to be true with for biracial people. That also, I think, definitely resonates with me from this kind of interfaith perspective. I feel a little bit like an outsider in both groups. Sorry, I couldn't help but bring in a little bit of science yeah. in that answer. I, I kind of, I notice I do that a lot. Uh, this is... I'll like, t- you'll be asking me about my own experience and I'll be like, it was or wasn't in line with the scientific <laughs> finding I know about. So, yeah. <laughs> you are on the right podcast for uh, a little science, a little religion. I'm glad. It's <laughs> a safe place. <laughs> it also seems like what a great gift to be given to uh, to be sort of formed into a a third group, a, a, a person who is a, a uniter, a, a, a bridge builder between disparate groups. Um, I imagine there's, it's got its own struggles, but that does, that does seem like a great gift to be handed. Um, so it, it also sounds like from an early age, you learned how to think critically about religious stories and to sort of form your own narrative that makes sense to you. That's something that we in the, in my Christian tradition, we encourage, you know, once kids are teenagers, they go through confirmation, they learn the stories more in depth, and then they decide on their mm-hmm. own if it's something that they want to to grasp onto. But most of those kids have had no experience in doing that up until that point. But it sounds like you were kind of trained from an early age. Um, if you don't mind me asking, where where is your sort of, uh, where do you feel uh, spiritually connected these days? That's a great question. So I, where do I, I feel very comfortable in a lot of religious spaces. And, but I would say that I have over the course of my life gravitated towards Jewish traditions um, and feel most comfortable Mm. partaking in and studying. Well, Studying, I'm kind of happy to study everybody, but uh, partaking in being a member of, I feel most comfortable (laughs) in uh, Jewish spaces. Why that is? Well, part of it was actually because of my my research interests. So I went to college knowing that I was fascinated by the human mind and wanted to, I wanted, and also just deeply in love with the scientific method. And I wanted to study psychology because that's not something I really understood, but I understood that it was going to be about like, I'd be studying human behavior using these tools from science that I had grown up learning in high school. Um, And then I also knew that I was really fascinated by world religions and wanted to study more about um, religion um, and how religions are similar or different across the world. And I uh, also was particularly became particularly interested in ethno-religious conflict 
and kind of when I first started mm. uh, studying psychology, I decided to get involved in a lab that happened to study or that happened to have a graduate student who studied ethno-religious conflict. And I decided I wanted to work on her project. Um, and so one of the most notable ethno-religious conflicts in the world would be the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and mm. I kind of simultaneously while also like studying, you know, getting into a lab, becoming a research uh, assistant and studying, you know, how growing up in a region of ethno-religious conflict affected your social cognitive development, um, which is so how growing up in a place like Israel or Palestine, how um, that affects what you learn about the other group. So how what Israelis learn about Palestinians and vice versa. Um, um, and also then how that shapes just your, you know, your psychology, how you even think about groups, how you approach the world, what, what expectations you have of people from those groups. Um, and so I actually, the particular researcher that I worked with first thing, she actually, uh, didn't study Israel, Palestine. She actually worked with Christians or, um, with Catholics and Protestants in Ireland and Northern Ireland, uh, so she Oof. wound up spending yeah. some time doing research and is now a professor at Queen's University in Belfast. Um, her name's Jocelyn Dottel, and she does really mm. amazing research. Um, but I, you know, had a particular interest in Israel-Palestine, but also was super interested in her work in Northern Ireland. Um, and so I, you know, couldn't help but reflect on myself and started really thinking about... Um, my own Jewish identity um, while I was while I was in college, kind of simultaneously, I started going to the Hillel while I was also studying these questions in the lab. Um, and then I uh, I did I did a birthright trip to Israel, and then soon after, I studied abroad in Israel, doing a basically a program on the history of Jerusalem during my second year of college. And then I actually, after graduating, moved to Israel for a year to do a Fulbright fellowship, actually studying mm. exactly what I had, had started doing in my very first year of, um, of undergrad. Uh, during my Fulbright fellowship, I worked in a lab that specifically worked with Jewish, Israeli, and Palestinian, Muslim, and Christian uh, kids. Um, looking at how growing up in this region affects the beliefs that you hold about social categories. So, sorry, that was kind of off topic, but I, it's almost like my, my scientific self and my religious self grew together. And in that process, I just kind of gravitated towards uh, Jewish traditions and I became much more comfortable with them because I started, you know, I studied Hebrew. I started being able to speak the language. I, uh, I had studied a little bit of Hebrew growing up because I attended Hebrew school uh, to be able to read the Torah for a bat mitzvah, but I um, delved into that even more in undergrad and then when I lived in Israel as well. And that, uh, so it just became easier to be, and in some ways, uh, particularly because the Jewish religion and was a lot of ways, in a lot of ways is very tied to, to Israel, but also being tied to speaking this language, um, whether being able to read and write biblical Hebrew or actually speaking modern Hebrew, uh, I just started feeling more comfortable. And I think that's kind of why I gravitated towards Judaism more these days. 
It also seems, and this is from an outsider's mm -hmm. perspective, that Judaism is better suited towards the scientific method. Um, that there's this emphasis, at least, yeah, there's this emphasis on s taking apart text and analyzing mm -hmm. things and bringing in all of these other observations and stories and that it is okay to to have new ideas about old texts as opposed to, you know, some of the ways that Western Christianity anyway has been a bit more uh, rigid, we'll say, and uh, more doctrinal. There, there's less freedom in Christianity, generally speaking, to, uh, to approach your religion scientifically. But that's just, that is an outsider's perspective. I look upon my rabbi friends with some amount of jealousy uh, holy envy is what we would call it. <laughs> that reflects that that observation reflects my experience as well. I mm. I there's this questioning your belief and coming to your belief through through questioning of it, thinking critically. That is just ingrained in just the history of uh, of Judaism and even learning about you know various rabbis over the course of history who have had wildly different opinions and. Uh, how that gets borne out. Um, I I don't have any specific memory of you know being told not to question by a Christian religious leader or anything like that, or being told to question by a uh, by a Jewish religious leader. But in general, the vibe has very much fit with I get to ask questions. Uh, thinking about Passover in particular yeah. makes me think about asking questions, you know, why is this night different from all other nights? Uh, you know, that that's even just built into the ritual process of, uh, of how, how Passover Beautiful. is celebrated is asking questions about why we're here. Um, the other thing about it too is as I, as I think I alluded to at the start of our discussion, I'm not, you know, particularly certain in what I believe um, that feels more important in Christianity, being certain in what you believe it's and Judaism feels a little bit more okay to be less certain about what you believe and to be just happy to be a part of the ritual and to be a part of the community, which isn't to say that I don't feel welcomed by uh by Christian communities. That's not true at all. I certainly do. Um, but I feel for whatever reason, I just feel a little bit more comfortable not being a hundred percent certain in what I believe in, in Jewish spaces. Sure. So in your research, you are researching how uh, children conceive of religious groups in compared to how they perceive their other groups like race and gender and nationality and whatnot. Um, have you found it borne out in the research that um, children of different religious groups treat those groups differently, if that makes sense? <laughs> yeah. So I uh, haven't. So as far as specific experiments that I've run uh, so far over the course of my graduate mm -hmm. school career, I haven't done anything that's specifically pitted um, religious groups against non-religious groups, though there has been some very excellent research that has done that. So for example, um, 
what am I thinking about? There's a, a researcher named Lisa Chalik who is uh, who has done some work looking at um, how Christian children and Jewish children think differently about what it means to be a member of their religious group um, and finds uh, that Jewish mm. children actually essentialize uh, being a member of the group a little bit more. So to when I say essentialize, uh, this is a, a, a term that's used in psychology that um, basically means to think that there's some kind of um, invisible essence that makes a person who they are, that makes them a member of, of the group okay. or of, of a given, of a given category or group. So you might to take a completely non-religious example. Um, I'll tell you about um, a raccoon. Um, and uh, you can imagine a situation where we subject this poor raccoon to terrible things where I'm going to dye their um going to dye them black <laughs> and I'm going to bleach their hair and give them a white stripe. So they end up looking like a skunk. Um, and you might say that this person or that this, uh, you, you know, someone who isn't thinking essentially about uh, what it means to be a raccoon might think, oh, well, they look like a skunk now. So they're a skunk. But if you think that there's some invisible, stable essence that you can't possibly change about the raccoon, you might say that even though they look like a skunk now, because I've dyed their hair black and given them this white stripe mm. so that they look like a skunk, that they're actually still a raccoon. Um, and we think about that way uh, with respect to natural kinds in the world, like animals. Like even if I were to dye a tiger so that they no longer had their stripes, you still think they're a tiger young kids will say that they still think they're a tiger. Um, but we also think that way about social groups. Um, but some people think about these groups, uh, about these groups to a greater extent than others. And so, for example, there's been some work showing that Jewish children think more essentially about what it means to be a member of the Jewish religion than Christian children do about the Christian religion, um, which might come from the what the actual doctrine, you know, what we're told about to be, to be Jewish often means to have a Jewish parent and in particular to have a Jewish mother. Um, and so that's not my own research. That's somebody else's Lisa's amazing research. Um, but that's one example that exists out there in my own work. I actually study what I think of as group dynamics that are, foundational to a lot of different groups, but are, but I think are particularly foundational to, um, to religion. So for example, my dissertation is centered around a project that I have looking at how children and adults think about people who change their social groups. So who convert, for example. So, um, there are lots of social group changes that exist in the world converting religions is the one that I had in mind when I designed these studies, uh, thinking about um, how people think about somebody who is a newcomer to their religious uh, faith and wasn't born into the group. Um, but uh, immigrating countries, that's a kind of conversion. Switching your sports team fandom, that's another kind of social group conversion. <laughs> uh, changing schools, like these are all very yeah. common things that happen. Um and in my in my own initial work, I look at um, how children and adults think about 
made up groups that I, I've made up for the purposes of the experiment. And I find that uh, children and adults expect others to prefer lifelong members of, a, of their made up group or of a made up group as compared to um, people who have converted to that group. And they also, even though I, you know, I made up these groups, so the children are definitely, and the adults are definitely not a part of these groups themselves. I also find that um, children, uh, they prefer lifelong members of groups to converts as well, um, as do adults. Um, and so that's a, uh, I have this initial work uh, where I just find with children of a variety of different faiths and ethnicities and backgrounds uh, who are I was able to collect in the Northeastern United States. So there's still a limitation there. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I find that generally with these just at baseline with these these made up groups. Um, but I am following up doing research, looking at uh, specifically uh, how children think about people who, for example, like how American children think about people who immigrate to and from the United States. That's one ongoing project that I have. And another that I have as well is on how uh, Christian and Jewish children and adults think about specifically Christian and Jewish converts to their group. Um, so no, no data to tell you about wow. specifically yet, but someday I hope to, I hope to, and I have some hypotheses. So with respect to, um, to what I think might be going on with, uh, with religious groups is I think we get told very specific things in these different doctrines that we grow up with. Uh, so I already example, for example, talked about in the Jewish tradition, though I think reform traditions hold a lot less to this than more orthodox traditions. Uh, in the Jewish tradition, you know, to be Jewish, uh, to some extent means being born into the group in that you have a Jewish parent. Um, but that's not the case mm -hmm. with, um, with Christianity and for a lot of Christian groups to, if you would like to become a Christian, it's just simply a matter of believing in this particular doctrine. And uh, I think children are learning about these things early on in development. Um, and you might be surprised by how early uh, it is that uh, you are uh, uh, about how early uh, children are picking up on these things. I'm very curious if you said you have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, if you, I wonder what their answer would be if you asked them, what does it mean to be a Christian? And uh, I, I wonder if you'll be surprised. My four-year-old is really into learning about this stuff. My seven-year-old will go, not Bible <laughs> stuff again. Ugh. He does not care. That's funny. Um, <laughs> I think it's, uh, that is funny. Um, I can't predict how, how every, how every seven-year-old or how every four-year-old will behave, but I, I'm very curious. Yeah. If you were to ask no. them, you know, what does it mean to be a member of the group? Are they going, mm. what are they going to say? Are they going to talk about, you know, to be Christian is to go to church every day, this very external or not every day, every week, uh, this very external thing, or are they going to talk about an internal thing? Like it's to believe in God. Um, and I actually don't know the answer to that yeah. question. Um, but to go back to my research really quickly, yeah. uh, I hypothesize that um, how, uh, how we approach uh, converts to our groups 
is going to be very much, even in young children, it's going to be very much based on the doctrine and what what is taught within those religious spheres. Um, and so Christian uh, children who might be more familiar with proselytization happening than Jewish children, which is not a lot of proselytization happening in uh, proselytizing happening in Judaism, might in some ways be um, more open to or and less surprised by somebody who has converted to their religious group. Meanwhile, Jewish children um, might think might be surprised that someone even converts. They might question whether or not it's even possible, mm. particularly if they're thinking of Judaism as being essentialized, like I talked about a little bit before, like being this this inherent part of you that's not actually changeable that you either have or you don't. So I know that was a lot. <laughs> no, not at all. So I'll say that I, I am currently in the United Church of Christ, which is a mainline Protestant mm -hmm. denomination. And if I were to think about it, there is definitely a prejudice in my denomination towards people who were born into it. You know, the people who know the right words and who have the right mm -hmm. lineage um, can, you know, have stories of being in, in choir as a child and have all the inside jokes. I grew up in a, like, very evangelical background where we prioritized evangelism. And in that place, it was very much, uh, there, there was very much a preference for converts, where if you had a story of conversion, then your faith felt more authentic mm -hmm. than the person who had been born into it. You know, we we always uh, would, would think about the prodigal son story, where it's the son who stayed behind, who was born into it, who was always did the right thing. That's like kind of the end, the villain in the story. But it's the it's the it's the one who went off and squandered everything and came back and had this conversion experience. That that's the person who has the real faith. And so I would love to hear like that kind of a data. Like you take a bunch of kids from a mainline Protestant church and you take a bunch of kids from like a really evangelical, and I don't mean that in like the, you know, right-wing evangelicals. I mean like they're evangelizing. Yeah. They care about converts. Take those two kids and ask them those sorts of questions about do you prefer the lifers or the the converts? And I wonder what the data would say about that. Yeah, so I, I totally... Um... I think you've just highlighted on why my research is going to take me about a million years uh, to do because <laughs> I, you know, I've been talking about Christianity so far as if it were a monolith, you know, as if there was just one Christianity and there certainly is not, there's so many different denominations. And I fully agree with you that, yeah, like I think um, when I was thinking of proselytization, I was often, I was thinking quite a bit about the sort of, evangelical movement in parts of the United States. And certainly, like, I think kids from a more evangelical sect are going to, uh, are going to be more open towards, uh, towards converts, exactly as you predicted, whereas uh, there are sects of Christianity that don't, uh, don't think of, con uh, of conversion in perhaps the same way. Um, and perhaps they're going to show a preference exactly as you predicted more for the lifelong group member. Um, 
and I've I've also thought about the prodigal son uh, in my own like as as an example. Uh, so I'm glad that that came to mind uh, for you too. Yeah, just thinking anecdotally, it doesn't seem uh, if you're connecting that understanding of group and belonging and converts and people who are born into it. Um, and then you connect that with immigrants to the United States. The, the sort of anecdotal Venn diagram in my mind of people who are really concerned about evangelism and people who are really accepting of immigrants, that's a very small Venn diagram. Yeah. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to translate to me in that way that those are usually the sorts of people who are like, stay in your country, don't come here, this is America. And so I, I imagine there's all kinds of other group identity issues that are all wrapped up in that, mm -hmm. and it's not quite as simple. Or else you wouldn't have to write a whole dissertation on yeah, it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it is, it's so complicated. Um, I think every day about how how complicated it is to study how kind of religion has become in our current landscape, particularly because a lot of world religions, Judaism included, were they were never meant to be worldwide. You know, I think, hmm. uh, oh, good point. And, you know, I think that uh, what religion even was for a long time was almost indistinguishable from just the culture within your within your particular community and going beyond it or going beyond your community was statistically an un, a very unlikely thing for you to be doing and here now we in in 2022 and children growing up in 2022 have this really difficult situation where uh, they've inherited from their family these belief systems that uh, have existed for for so long and uh we're now adapting our beliefs to the present time so with that in mind i'm not surprised um in the decrease in religiosity that we're seeing just you know worldwide interesting so you're saying that these religions were not designed to be worldwide and so they're not well equipped for this global world yeah i wouldn't i mean i i feel like i'm treading into territory that I'm not actually an expert in. That was just sort of an observation that I, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, yeah, I think yeah. we would, you know, a lot of religions mm. are seeing themselves presented. You know, I, when I first studied, started studying religious studies in college, I majored in psychology and I wound up minoring in religious studies, but I hoped to have them as a double major. And ultimately what it came down to is I didn't want to have to write two theses. That just seemed like a lot of work when I had senioritis. <laughs> um, but I, I did a lot of coursework in religious studies and I'm thinking of, you know, there's these big seven major world religions that you, that you study. Uh, and uh, yeah. I can't even, I think the number is seven. I could try and list them right now. You know, there's Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, maybe. I'm not sure, but anyways, there. Are, I I remember the number being seven. Uh, I don't remember. I can't count them anymore. This is why I'm doing a PhD in psychology and not in religious studies. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I just remember thinking about like Judaism in particular, but also like uh, how. Yeah, we, you know, just even learning this term like, oh, there are these big seven religions is taking widely varying things 
that often are a mix of a lot of different beliefs from a lot of different communities all over a country and uh hmm. and mashing them into this one uh you know into this one label and now we think of things in terms of labels and we did this i mean this is this is something that we as humans uh seem inclined to do kind of over, like construct societies such that we we turn uh, these labels into these meaningful things when in fact there's a huge amount of variance. I'm thinking of race when I think of that, you know, what it means to be black, hmm. uh, what it means to be white. These are these terms that have changed a lot um, over the course of history. And yet, you know, I think we all feel like we have an intuitive sense of what these terms mean, but they fall apart in all these kinds of ways. I think what it means to be in a lot of different religious groups is also like that too i don't know if that made any sense but i hope so it did absolutely that's a really good parallel because a lot of what it means to be white in a it is an american construct it mm -hmm. it means that you are not black in many ways it, it's that it, it that you are the default mm -hmm. uh that you have no cultural add-on to it which is just this insidious aspect of white supremacy that robs us white people of our identity let alone you know all of the damage it does to other people but it is an identity created in the midst of oppression and it's not one that is well suited to just normal life and so like you got people like me who grew up feeling like man i want an ethnicity and like would latch on to my one eighth Native American mm -hmm. or one sixteenth, one thirty second. I don't even know where it is um, and be like, well, that's who I am. I am a Native. I even one time put that on an application when I was a, a teenager for a job application that I was Native American, even though whatever. No, you're not, Zach. Um, but that is just whiteness is not built to be an actual identity on its own without being compared to something else. I think Christianity kind of has done that too, but that's a rant for a different I mean, episode. I was actually about to ask you that question because that was in the back of my mind as well is, uh, do you think Christianity, because I certainly think from a research perspective, we, we treat Christian adults as being the default with respect to that you study any other religion in comparison to Christian adults but we are doing ourselves a disservice by talking about Christians very very broadly um, and not thinking about exactly as we've already discussed the ways in which lots of different denominations of Christianity can be very different even in these these ways that are about yeah. you know their psychology I think Christianity is a terrible world religion it was not built to be a world religion, despite what people will say about the Great Commission and go out into all the world and preach the good news and yada, yada, yada. What Christianity is, is the teachings of an unlicensed rabbi in the first century <laughs> who had a particular affinity for the poor um, and for the marginalized and who had no love for the empire and had some very spicy things to say about those in charge, both religiously and politically. And he and all of his followers were all murdered for it. And all of the earliest followers, likewise, when they held to those teachings that this is a this is a religion being born out of the lower mm -hmm. classes. It's like uh, the worship of Dionysus, that this is like 
the oppressed minorities cling to this this power, this this uh, uh, dignity that is given to them by this faith, and that's when it works. But you take that ethos and that teaching and that example, and then you you elevate it to Caesar, mm-hmm. and you have to do all kinds of interpretive gymnastics to then fit the life and works of Jesus into that. And so as when Christianity is in seats of power, we have to invent persecutions because it's written into the code. Christians are persecuted. Jesus was persecuted. All of the disciples, the early church, everyone was mm-hmm. persecuted. So we have to be persecuted if we're going to be Christians. And then so we're not. We then take this religion of the poor and marginalized, and we've turned it into a religion of the oppressor. This is now Herod's religion that Jesus would have hated. And so that's why you have all these Christians out there who are like, Disney is oppressing us by pushing on its beliefs on us. And so we are this oppressed minority people when no, you're not. There has never been a non-Christian president of the United States. You are not oppressed, but you have to invent it because it's a part of our DNA. So Christianity does not work in the highest levels. It does not work as an empire religion. What it is, is just Roman religion with Jesus on the front of it. And that works well. I think after time, the more you study it, the more you realize you cannot have the Beatitudes um, in front of the court. Uh, you just you just can't. You can't say blessed are the peacemakers and fund the Pentagon the way we do. But that's why I think American Christianity is dying because it, it is rotten from the core and there is no substance to it. And it is being reborn in the places where it should have been all along as a fringe religion. Uh, that is fighting against the powers instead of the dominant religion who is the power. Anyway, that was my rant. Well, I think that that rant fit perfectly. Well, I loved it. First of all, I loved every minute of it and also fits perfectly with the argument that I was making (laughs) that uh, religions were never meant to be world religions. That's, and we, we are adapting Mm -hmm. and we as societies are adapting to this, uh, our, our belief systems are adapting to this new global globalized world that we that we live in and it's it's leading to some wacky stuff I mean do you you've certainly read the ideas of like uh, Yuval Harari and and people like that that religion formed as a way of making larger mm-hmm. groups so that like cities could be united whereas previously only villages because we just don't have the capacity to build relationships over 150 people or so. And so we had to invent big gods to then control big cities, Um, except now do we need even bigger gods um, to control our cities, to control our world? I mean, capitalism feels like a pretty big god that might be able to handle it better than than the ones we've been inherited. But Capitalism feels like a pretty big god. Again, a different dissertation. Wow. I mean, Jesus said you can't serve God and money, so you got to pick one. That's why I'm, I don't have any money, by the way. Um, didn't <laughs> Jesus also say, like, give unto Caesar what he is doing? I don't remember the exact, I can't quote, uh, I can't quote gospel very well, but I do remember a point where he says to still pay your taxes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they were trying to trap him and get him executed early by, uh, but, well, if you're so against the government, well, do you think that we should still pay our taxes? And Jesus is like, yeah, whatever. It's just <laughs> money. 
go ahead. Pay your taxes uh, so you don't bring down too much unnecessary punishment on you. Like, I, I take that passage as like, pick your battles, people. <laughs> you know, they always get like the criminal overlords on tax evasion, don't they? So it's a good point. <laughs> they always get the criminal overlords on tax evasion. Right. Wasn't that Al Capone got taken down on taxes? So that's just words of advice from Jesus to Al Capone is pay your taxes and then, you know, run, uh, run your, all of your legal operations. I think that's what Jesus was saying. <laughs> don't don't uh, don't quote me on that. <laughs> so is there anything in your research that you've been doing that has been particularly surprising to you? That's a great question. This is not an answer about a scientific finding. Um, this is just more a observation. So I study children. Right. I do, you know, I study uh, the development of social group concepts and very broadly, and kids say the darndest things. And so sometimes I just wish everybody could be <laughs> a, uh, I wish everybody could be a uh, developmental psychologist because just, I feel like I, anytime I sit down with a kid to run them in a study, I learn something new and bizarre and question whether I even fully understand how a child's mind works. So I'm, yes. so I, that's not a specific scientific finding I'm surprised by, but in general, I just, a, a remark about how I'm just always surprised, uh, happily surprised uh, when I do my research. I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to that. As I always tell my church, these kids are going to ask the questions that uh, you wish you had the guts to ask. That's true, too. There's a lot of, uh, there's a period of middle childhood where I'm glazing over a lot of research here, but there's a, right around eight to 10 <laughs> is when kids start realizing, oh, I should probably pay attention to what I'm saying and make sure that it doesn't actually upset it. It's when, it's when they start worrying about what other people think mm. i mean they're they you know they develop a theory of mind much earlier than that they start thinking about what other people might think in different situations but you start have you start having to be worried about them giving the like socially correct answer at around middle childhood um mm. and it's always sad when that happens <laughs> my son is entering into that now he's all worried about being embarrassed and what his friends think and what's cool and yep. you know we don't like girls and girl stuff anymore and unicorns are for girls i don't want anything to do with that mm -hmm. and it just breaks my little heart <sighs> the sad thing as well is that there i'm not sure that there's anything you can do about that as a parent because there's uh hmm. you know i would say overall the research suggests that it's your your son's peer environment even if you are not um you know, of course, you can and should do as much as you can about, uh, you know, not imposing any kind of gender norms on your child or any particular norms on your children. But even if you as parents don't give those norms to your don't instruct them, your children are going to get it from society. Because these norms, you know, girls like pink, boys like blue, they're so engendered into everything around us mm. all they have to do is walk into a store and see that the things on the girl's side are very pink and the things on the boy's side are very blue and that's going to that's already going to shape their beliefs they don't even have to be 
told anything. They're just picking up on this like statistical information in their environments. So sorry, that's a, a sad way to end our time here. <laughs> but yeah. Now, friggin' society. <sighs> but as we are approaching the end of our time together, which feels way too soon, um, I want to give you one question that I've asked um, all of the fellows before you and take your time and uh, answer as you will. But what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? So you get you get an instant where you can take one idea, one bit of knowledge, one whatever, and implant it matrix style into every single brain in the world. What What would you want? My instinct is to say that people have multiple sides to them. People have multiple groups that they're a part of and that no one single label can define everybody. Uh, you know, labels themselves, like, hmm. you know, being a Christian is not a monolith. It doesn't mean that you are going to definitely vote for Trump or all of these different things. Um, that's one thing. But also that being a Christian doesn't preclude you from also being Jewish, from also having these other things about you. Hmm. That is what that was. That is my instinctual response is that that uh, basically that interfaith people exist and that a bunch of people exist at the intersection of categories in a lot of different ways. Oof. And if we're being honest with each other, I would think most of us exist in some intersection that maybe a lot of us aren't comfortable admitting. Exactly. But that when more people like you are talking openly about that intersectionality. You're making space where people can feel more comfortable expressing their honest and true selves. Yeah. So thank you for your work. Thank you for this time together. Um, I've really thank enjoyed it. Thank you so much. This has been so fun.